This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by This Is Not Church podcast and the letter F. And you. (laughs) (laughs) If you've made it this far, my name is Nat Turney, my brother John Turney, and I co-host This Is Not Church, the podcast. And this is sadly the level of discourse that you can expect to find if you tune in every Monday when we drop new episodes. But all joking aside, John and I see this as as an opportunity for us to address issues that we don't think are addressed nearly enough inside of evangelicalism. So LGBTQIA plus issues, BIPOC issues, social justice issues. We like to talk to a broad variety and range of people and really try to find places of commonality for everybody. So check out the podcast. Every Monday, our episodes drop. Wherever you stream podcasts, you can find us. Remember, this is not church. And to that, John says, Peace. Hi friends, I'm Tim Whitaker and welcome to the New Evangelicals podcast. The New Evangelicals is an inclusive, Jesus-centered community that holds space for people marginalized by the evangelical church, advocates for accountability in the church, and helps you explore the Christian tradition beyond the basement of evangelical fundamentalism. This podcast is part of that work, so join us as we talk to people from all walks of life, lending their expertise and wisdom to us as we renegotiate our faith and find better paths forward. Hello, beautiful friends. How are you? Welcome back to another podcast episode of the New Evangelicals podcast. I brought on, this is a special one because I brought on the winner of our Holy Shit Week giving campaign that I mentioned a few weeks ago. Um, Alyssa was the winner. So she hopped on to co-host this episode with me. I spoke to Andrew Seidel, who wrote the book, American Crusade, How the Supreme Court is Weaponizing Religious Freedom. I've had Andrew on the podcast before. He's a constitutional lawyer. He works with Americans United. And so he does amazing, awesome, fantastic work. And I brought him on to talk about what's going on with the Supreme Court. Um, How is this happening? Why is the Supreme Court weaponized? All that good stuff. And we talked about it. I mean, this is an intense podcast, okay? As always, I know my podcasts are not always feel good and they don't leave you ready to go. But at the end of this, Andrew does give us hope and gives us why he's hopeful of a better future for all people. So I think you're going to really enjoy this episode. That being said, as always, thank you. Thank you for being part of the show. Thank you for tuning in, for sharing the podcast. If you want to support our work, you know the drill. You can like, you can subscribe, you can share this episode, you can give us a rating or a review on podcasts or on on iTunes or on Spotify or YouTube. And if you want to support the work that we do, we are a nonprofit organization holding space for thousands of people as they navigate really a, a, a new way of thinking about being Christian. So you can donate at the link in our show notes All donations are tax deductible. All right, friends, without further ado, here's my episode with Andrew. Talk to you all later. Big news, friends. The podcast is heading back to Theology Beer Camp hosted by Trip Floor. Now, Noah and I went last year, and it was an amazing time. We met so many of you, and we're doing it again this year in October. You'll get to hang out with podcasts like ours. You have permission with Dan Koch, The Bible for Normal People with Pete Enns and Jared Bias, and so many more. And there are amazing scholars like Adam Clark, Thomas J. Ort, and John Dominic Crossan with more speakers and podcasts to be announced. The sooner you 
you get tickets, the cheaper they are. In fact, if you use promo code TNEGodPod, you'll get $25 off your ticket. Let me tell you something. If you are looking for better ways forward in the Christian tradition, this is the event to come to. Yes, you get to hear from some amazing speakers and hear some amazing lectures, but the secret sauce in beer camp is that you get to hang out with these folks and listen to them in conversation. Plus, you get to hang out with Noah and I for a few days and have a great time. Use promo code TNEGodPod for $25 off your ticket, and I'll see you in Missouri in October with me and Noah, Trip Fuller, all the great scholars, all the great podcasts. I'll see you then. Friends, hello. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. I have with me, this is actually maybe the most unique podcast I've ever done because I have with me a co-host. Uh, Alyssa is co-hosting this episode with me because she was the winner of one of our Holy Shit Week giveaways. Uh, so Alyssa, great to have you co-hosting with me. Uh, do you want to introduce yourself to the audience really quick? Sure, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Tim. I've been a part of the new evangelical movement, I think, since pretty much the beginning. I think we were kind of in infancy, like 500, 700 followers. So I consider myself definitely wow. like an OG new evangelical. <laughs> um, I did the classic move to Washington, D.C. after college, and I'll do two years you know, here. That was 15 years ago. <laughs> so I have just lived in... Um, DC. I love it up here. I've worked at the White House. I've worked with the Hill. I've worked on committees um, in consulting, um, doing crisis management, corporate strategy, and um, issues management. So I'm very excited to talk about um, Andrew, your book. I was so excited. Read it in the last two days. Very impressed. Wow. Um, wow. And just, I, yeah, I think it's just going to be a great conversation. Anything that we can do. Um, Really, as people who firmly believe this, who firmly believe that um, the people that are the loudest are the least representative of um, a lot of Christians, and um, unfortunately, that's where the money is, and money makes people talk really loudly. So I'm very excited for us to have a voice um, to combat that and to show the true meaning of Christianity. So thank you so much for having me today. Awesome. Um, it's great to have you, Alyssa. And friends, yes, we have Andrew Seidel back on the podcast. I mean, this is the second time, Andrew. You and I chat pretty often, as much as we can behind the scenes. I know you're incredibly busy, so thanks for making time. Um, you don't have to go through your whole life story, but very briefly, do you want to give a quick little introduction, who you are and what you currently do? Sure. Uh, I'm an attorney, a litigator by trade. I guess now I'm recovering from that, uh, and I'm in the comms space. So, uh, you know, I, I'm currently the Vice President of Strategic Communications for Americans United for Separation of Church and State, which is a mouthful, but it means that, you know, I've been defending the separation of church and state for the last decade uh, or more of my career now. Uh, and I'm wow. doing it instead of in the courts, I'm doing it in the court of public opinion these days. And that includes talking to media, you know, talk, drafting our talking points, helping litigation team communicate what's happening in the courts to the public at large. And then, you know, in my spare time, I write books about this stuff. <laughs> yeah. You know, when you're not with the family or, you know, changing the world, you write a book here or there, you know, no big deal. So, and that, that, that actually is why I want to get you back on the podcast because you wrote a book. I have it here, friends. It's called American there it is crusade how the supreme court is weaponizing religious freedom i gotta say like this is 
and I mean, listen, all the people we have here who write books, they all, they all write great books. This book is important for Christians who want to understand the legal stuff happening behind the scenes that maybe doesn't make the, the Twitter sphere or like the social media sphere and maybe doesn't go viral all the time, but actually has profound impacts on how our country is run and who it privileges. So I have to ask you, Andrew, my first question is why this book? Like, why did you find or, or what was the need that you saw that made you say this book has to get written? So the, the dedication of the book says something like two. I can read it. Go for it. Go for it. Read it. Yeah. That, I mean, <laughs> right. go for it. Hold on. Yeah, it's a good one. It's a good one. Hold on, let me pull it up. It's a good one. <laughs> Um, this book is dedicated to American Christian nationalists. We're not coming for your rights. We're coming for your privilege. Yeah. So, so that's the dedication. And that that's, I mean, that is, I think if I had to sum up the book, that's what I'm trying to talk about in it. And, uh, you know, it really centers around this truly a crusade, um, to turn religious freedom which has, you know, it's long been this hallowed right that protects us all into a tool, into a weapon of, of Christian privilege and Christian supremacy. And it, 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 to me, it is one of the central fights that people don't get fully grasp because religious freedom is what protects everybody who is listening to this podcast, right? It's what guarantees your right to be an evangelical Christian or to be a godless heathen like myself or <laughs> to, to believe in, or in any God or reject any God that you choose. It's long been this shield, this hallowed protection against government overreach, the minority's protection against the tyranny of the majority. And it's been guaranteed by a strong separation of church and state, but, but not anymore. In the last decade, we have seen a well-funded, powerful network of Christian nationalist organizations and judges. I mean, we're talking about a billion-dollar shadow network here that has been working to, to turn that protection of religious freedom enjoyed by all of us into a weapon of supremacy and privilege for the few. And, and really, when we talk about the few, we're talking about white Christian nationalists. <laughs> it, and if, it's interesting. I think I was talking with my husband last night about your book and everything that's going on. And, you know, we've certainly seen, you know, we, we used to consider ourselves Republican. I think we're very much in the politically homeless um, mm. camp right now. And, and just, you know, I mean, I worked for president Bush in the white house. I, you know, definitely held those ideals I'm from Dallas, Texas, like, you know, those things that those things run deep, but um, he said something that I thought was incredibly wise. And he said that, Christian nationalism is not the will of the people. It masquerades as the mindset of the majority, but it is the mindset of a toxic minority. And our democracy only works through a system of checks and balances. And as exemplified by the current supermajority on the Supreme Court, it has been successfully infiltrated by the toxic mindset. And I think that's so true. I think, you know, back to the point of, with it, with the 24 hour news cycle and with social media, the loudest voice gets the most clicks. They get the most, and then the damage is done. The ad revenue is in their pocket. And we, there, there's less of uh, the, the generation, the teens and the generations that are coming up have less of a critical eye to say, Hey, wait a minute. Is that really true? Or do I really believe mm. that? 
or do I just believe that because it has the most likes? And I think that that, you know, that that masquerading is so it's dangerous and it's scary. Yeah. I mean, I I think that's right. I think, but I also think we we can go a step farther and we, I mean, White Christian nationalism is fundamentally opposed to democracy. Oh, yeah. I mean, that, that, yes. that, that's not a bug. That is, that is a feature of it. That, that is the goal because they are the minority. And, and what we're seeing is conservative white Christian American status as the dominant group is threatened. And it has been for some time, right? They're, they're losing the culture wars, which is, I think, a silly phrase that's often meant to mask yeah. attacks on human rights. Right? They're... they're as your husband pointed out, their, their ideas and their ideology are unpopular. You know, the, the, the numbers show, you know, it's 70 to 80% of the country support the separation of church and state, 70 to 80% of the country support abortion rights. Uh, you know, the, the numbers are, are not in their favor and they're Checks losing the power. And the, all that, yeah. Yes. And, and, and they're losing the power and privilege and deference, which they believe they are due. And we know, I mean, the, the, uh, political scientists and sociologists have studied this. We know that when a dominant group or caste in a society feels threatened or feels left behind by circumstances, that it reacts or overreacts by seeking ways to retain that status. And, and this is why we are seeing them turn to Christian nationalism, why we are seeing them turn to violent insurrection, why we are seeing them turn to tearing down democratic norms in these so-called you know, strongmen. Um, but that's mm-hmm. also why they are seeking this weapon, this, this weaponized version of religious freedom, uh, because it allows them to retain yeah. that power and privilege, even though they are in the minority. And that's not the way a democracy is supposed to work. Right. Talk to me about, let's focus on the Supreme Court for a second, yeah. because, you know, I grew up, you, you know this already, Andrew, and so does the audience. I grew up on a steady diet of talk radio. And anytime there was a decision that came down that was not in their favor, they would use the same, this, this phrase, it's a weaponized court. It's a weaponized court. It's been a weaponized court. And, you know, the more, the older I get, the more I'm like, actually, you guys weaponized the court. Yeah. Like, like you literally have weaponized the court. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, in your book, your book is really formatted like here's case after case after case of examples of this. When you were writing the book, were there any cases that really stood out to you that might be good for the audience to hear how this Christian nationalist, I would argue, far right movement has weaponized the court? Yeah, I mean, certainly, certainly there were, but you know, I mean, I'm sure a lot of your listeners were, were grew up in this space and like heard about the openly heard, preached, and talked about the fact that you were going to take over the Supreme Court, right? I mean, they, they weren't shy about this in the movement, and and you know, Leonard Leo is kind of now, especially now with the, the scandals that are rocking the court, rightfully so, in my opinion. He's kind of universally recognized as the guy who orchestrated the hostile takeover of the Supreme Court. And a former employee described Leo's mission, and it goes to exactly what we're talking about. Uh, this is what the employee said, quote, Leo figured out 20 years ago that conservatives had lost the culture war. Abortion, gay rights, contraception. Conservatives didn't stand ha- have a chance if public opinion prevailed, so they needed to stack the courts. Hmm. And that's what they did. And, and, and like, right, notice the anti-democratic admission, the goal in, in that quote. If, if they didn't stack the court, the majority would rule. If they didn't stack the court, right. democracy would work. Like, yeah. And we know that, that his groups spent at least $540 million packing the court from 2014 wow. to 2020. And you don't spend that kind of money to, 
to buy an impartial court, right? You don't spend that kind of money to just put an impartial jurist on the bench who's going to decide cases as the law and the constitution dictates. You you do it to buy a court. Um, mm. and, and Leo's job was also described as the, quote, monitor of the nominee's ideological purity. And all told, he's responsible for the confirmation of Roberts, Alito, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett. Uh, Thomas is mm. an old friend of Leo's. Um, all six of those justices were members of the Federalist Society. So that, that's six votes on the Supreme Court. And Leo personally chose five of them for their ideology. And it's this, this crusader ideology that I talk about in the book. So they captured the court. And to me, one of the cases that best exemplifies the whole crusade and what we're seeing right now is, is the Masterpiece Cake Shop case. That the gay wedding mm. cake case out of Colorado for for a couple reasons. One, I think so many people misunderstand what that case was about, what actually happened in that case, and then what the court decided. And that was deliberate. I mean, the, 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 we, the American public was the victim of a, a, an intentional disinformation campaign uh, put mm. on by the Alliance Defending Freedom, the group that was that was bringing this case. Um, we don't know how much money they spent on public relations in that case, but I know <laughs> that their budget was between 50 and $60 million. And it was a good chunk of it had to have gone um, to PR in this case. Um, wow. And, and what, whatever, if you are listening to this, I promise you, I promise you, promise you, promise you, whatever you think you know about that case some of it is wrong, if not most of it. Mm. And and the where you are wrong is because the other side was successful with, with this disinformation campaign. It was it was truly remarkable. Um, so you know, for that for that case, I went I went back and I interviewed Charlie and Craig, the couple who were involved in that that case. Um, talked to them quite at length. I interviewed people who were on the Colorado Civil Rights Commission at the time, um, who essentially the Supreme Court scapegoated and made into as if they were anti-religious bigots. Um, and that was how they kind of escaped in this case. Um, you know, I, I listened to all of the oral arguments. I went back to the original case that was put before administrative law judges and before the commission listened. I basically, you know, did, did everything from the beginning. And um, yeah. it, 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 there's, there's just so much there that people do not understand. And I got to tell the true story of what happened in that case for all my readers, but also for posterity, because I think there's going to come a time in the future when we're going to need to know what really happened in these cases. And I wanted to set the record straight. Well, it does remind me of the um, of the more recent case, the coach prank, coach Joe Kennedy. Is that his name or the guy oh, yeah. who was praying on, mm-hmm. on the on the field? And I remember I think it was you, Andrew, or someone sent me like, hey, here's what actually happened. Yeah. Here's the photos. Here's all the data. And I remember thinking, OK, this is my first time I kind of have a grasp on some case that's that's going to the Supreme Court. And then I remember seeing the blatant disinformation from like Franklin Graham. Yeah. Coach Joe was fired just because he wanted to pray peacefully and in private. I'm like that is blatant like here's the picture of him praying with students Mm -hmm. you know like we have evidence and so it it was a maybe a wake-up call for me of just how you know blatantly disingenuous sometimes these cases can get uh, can can, can be misrepresented and what they do is the the way that that the evangelical evangelical conservative world works is that they have trusted voices that that they trust over anyone or anything else right so if that voice is franklin graham or it's some right-wing media pundit or it's their pastor if that person is is able to say whatever whoever's defending coach joe you know wants them to say that will convince those followers to believe that narrative despite 
the reality of the situation. And I think what's most telling about this, and I'll hand it back over to you, Andrew, is that Coach Joe is not coaching football. He's on like tours now. He's on tours. He's become the poster yeah. boy for religious oh, freedom. Yeah. The man who's 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 sued the Supreme Court so he, or sued up to the Supreme Court so he could play, so he can coach football and pray in peace. Apparently, isn't even doing that anymore. He's too busy, you know, speaking at the next far right event, you know, protect freedom. That's kind of stuff. It, frankly, it bugs me. Yeah, a lot of money. Exactly, a lot of money on the speaking yeah. tour. Yeah, that and that's where he is. He's on the speaking circuit. Yeah. Well, and I think, and not to interject, but something that I think is is just poignant and really interesting here um, is, you know, so I obviously grew up buckle of the Bible Belt, and you know, I I mean, from a very early age, when it was you know presidential election or midterms, you know, my family was you know involved politically for sure. They're active citizens. I have an uncle who's a general in the Air Force, and. My father served in the, in the Air Force, you know, just involved, right? I mean, we're not out there canvassing or things like that, but just involved in and in understanding what's going on. One of the first tenets that I was ever taught about voting and politicians, politics in general, was it doesn't matter who the president is. It matters who the Supreme Court is. You're, you are voting yeah. for the Supreme Court. Mm. And that talking point was not singular to my family. It was. And not even singular to my demographic. I mean, that it was, that was the whole ballgame was you're voting for the Supreme Court. And I think what's so interesting is you said it took Leo, you know, 20 plus years. He, he, re- he realized the problem and it took him 20 plus years to get to the solution. I think we forget that the other side did that too. What they did to win the culture wars was they had library book cards reclassified in San Francisco books about either with homosexual characters or about homosexuality reclassified from pornography to lifestyle. And it's so interesting to me when that you take those very, very small changes, and then you watch them grow and grow and grow and grow so that in 20, 30 years, you have the court that you want, or you have the leader that you want and understanding that this is not an overnight option, right? And I think I think it's just so interesting to see that both sides have been doing it. Um, and that to me is just interesting strategy. I mean, you know, that's just, good strategic thinking, but, um, you know, yeah, I mean that line of, you know, hold your nose, vote for whoever, because you're going to get the Supreme court that you want. It is so prevalent, you know, in the last five or six elections. I mean, that was, that was the talking point. It didn't matter who it was, just matter who the Supreme court was. I mean, I, that's true. And I think I, the, the idea that I think this, the center of the country and certainly the legal profession. And I think a lot of, you know, what some people might call the elites. I think the, the, I think a lot of people don't realize that there was a deliberate attempt to capture the Supreme court. And I think they, even if they heard that talking point or quotes uh, or read about them in, you know, the, the news coming out of these deeply conservative and Christian nationalist spaces, I, I think they discounted them and and thought that something like that wasn't possible. And I, but I want to be careful to distinguish general societal progress and towards equality 
with a deliberate attempt to capture the court. And th- because this to me does go oh, to yeah, the heart of, of why, why they're seeking to capture this, right? Um, there's, there's some really interesting studies that I talk about in the book, which show that um, Christian nationalists conflate demographic loss of status, right? When they no longer become the majority with a threat to their freedom. Um, in, in other words, they fundamentally misunderstand religious liberty as religious privilege because they're, they're these deeply conservative Christians are accustomed to this deference and privilege, and they feel that uh, expansions of freedom and that changing demographics violate their rights. But we we know that parity is not oppression, and that equality, even when it means the erosion of privilege, is not discrimination. And we're not actually expanding rights or giving new rights, we are recognizing rights that have always existed under the law, but were never enforced. We are affirming the humanity of our brothers and sisters and siblings and admitting sometimes that we've been wrong. And so I think as we realize the aspirational values that are implicit in we the people and equal justice under law and these other founding maxims, as we recognize that that humans are human and worthy of rights, conservative white Christian America is it's dying this slow demographic death and rebelling. They they are Hmm. raging against the dying of their privilege. And so they declared war and that war is this crusade. It is this quest to Hmm. remake the shield, that protection into a weapon for maintaining that once dominant group status. And the cases that I detail, Tim, that you were talking about in the book, including the coach case, those are the steps on the road or the bricks on their road towards weaponizing religious freedom. And they are actually litigating the legal meaning of religious freedom as a constitutional right and in the process redefining it. Can you talk about, because I know you mentioned this in the book, how, like, and I'm going to kind of butcher it because the idea, um, I'm kind of blanking a bit, but the idea of like how religious freedom is like a free speech issue as opposed to like a religious issue. Does that make sense? Like I remember like you talking about how, how the court started seeing, yeah. uh, you know, um, religious talk in schools as all of a sudden free speech as opposed to like a religious um, promotion, I guess. Can you break that down and how that, how that shifted? Yeah. And you, I, I, your confusion on it is understandable. And um, it's, I've actually, I actually, a lot of my writing on that ended up on the editing room floor um, I, but I'm contemplating a little, maybe another volume possibly on just that. Cause mm. there was this really interesting tactic. Uh, it started in the eighties. It really started with Jay Sekulow and the American center for law and justice, you know, this kind of famed Christian nationalist outfit. And they began arguing that arguing religion cases as free speech cases um, kind of culminated in this, this um, Jews for Jesus case uh, that happened in an airport um, and essentially uh, trying to get greater, they would say legal protections for exercising one's religion um, under the free speech protections. Um, they've moved away from that quite a bit in this push to weaponize religious freedom explicitly. Um, but, you know, to, to me, the striking thing about all of this, and, and this is the thing that I really tried to drive home in the book, um, is that the questions presented in these religious freedom cases these days are not hard. Mm. They're, they're very 
easy to solve, including the gay wedding cake case, including the case of the coach praying on the field, including the case of um, the the private Christian schools that want access to taxpayer funds to inculcate bigotry. These are not hard cases. And what I tried to do in the book was give lay readers three very simple rules that they could use to analyze any one of these cases that, that, and, and the rules come from case law. Uh, they come from all the way that we have analyzed and decided these cases for, for centuries in the United States. Mm. And, and by showing those three simple lines, then telling the stories of what happened in the cases. Now you can see how the court is moving so far away from them. Um, and, and the, yeah. the, the, the crucial thing is that the, these are not hard cases that they're really easy, but the yeah. court is so that the court isn't botching them. They're deliberately redefining religious freedom using these cases. Do you see, you know, like right now in Texas, there's a push for um, mandating the Ten Commandments yeah. being um, in every single classroom. There's also, I think, push to make uh, clergy who are not licensed by the state to become potentially substitutes for actual counselors. I just read that article today that's happening. Um, a lot of stuff is going on in places like Texas and others where it does seem like there's this push just to really, quote unquote, like Christianize these public institutions with like public symbolism. Mm -hmm. Do you see things like that heading to the Supreme court intentionally because they know that, that there's a good chance the court would rule in their favor now that it's stacked towards a certain predisposition? Yes. And yes. And yes, there's, I mean, there's, there's so much to unpack there. Um, and it's, it's, it's perfect for this conversation because those bills are justified by pointing to religious freedom. Right. We're going to put chaplains in schools that are Christian that are explicitly talking about how they're going to convert your kids to Christianity because we have religious freedom, which is just just right. utter nonsense. And if you understand the three simple lines and understand why that, that that violates the religious freedom of every single kid in the public school. So do the Ten Commandments post. The Ten Commandments bill includes the text of the Ten Commandments that the legislator himself wrote. Right. That should piss everybody right. off. Like, whether right. you are an atheist like me, you don't want that in the classroom. It begins, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me. Or whether you're a believer, that is the state writing Holy Scripture and mandating it's this version of Holy Scripture, me, just some dude on a committee. What? Right. How are right. we here? Right. Um, so, I mean, yes, that, I mean, that, that's a, it's a very clear violation of the religious freedom of students, but these are stemming out, it, it's all part and parcel of this same crusade. Because if you look at, they're not just pointing to religious freedom. The groups that were pushing some of these bills is First Liberty Institute. And First Liberty yeah. Institute is the group that was behind the coach case that you mentioned earlier that I talk about in the book, behind another case called Carson versus Macon that I just mentioned, which was the main case about uh, public funding for private Christian schools. Um, they have a, another case before the Supreme Court right now. So what they do is, they they continually push the boundaries of the law. They continually pervert religious freedom in their favor to augment and empower conservative white Christians at the expense of everybody else. And then when they are successful either in court or in the legislature, they do it again. So they're just they're just cranking this ratchet over and over and over and over and over again. And it's never backsliding because the court won't let it. Um, and, and really, the, there's no amount of power or privilege or deference which is going to satisfy them. 
they will never stop. Right. It, it, it's up to us to stop them. Yeah. Well, I remember, um, I remember, uh, I think it was Texas again, where there was, uh, someone who wanted to introduce, you know, uh, in God we trust being like mandated in public schools. Mm -hmm. And so I think it actually got passed. And so someone's like, great, we'll do it in rainbow lettering. We'll do it in our, uh, Aramaic. And they went, no, 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 not what I meant. Not what I meant has to be in English. It's like, it just shows what it, it just shows. I think the true colors of what they're actually trying to do, right? They'll, they'll, they might use uh, religious freedom as the Trojan horse, but ultimately what they're saying is we need yeah. American conservative, evangelical English, you know, not non-affirming, yeah. you know, Christianity enforced in schools over anything else. Yeah. I think it's just yeah. laughable, honestly. Yeah, it's not it's not the Jesus of the Bible. It's the no. straight white American Jesus, as our friend Brad yeah. Alushi says, right? Like that's, yeah, that's right. who they that's are. Right. There. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Alyssa, sorry to dunk on your home state all the time. Uh, oh, <laughs> there's a reason I live in Virginia. It's totally fine. Okay. okay. <laughs> I mean, besides the Mexican food, which could be better up here, but that's okay. Um, Fair. No, but I, you know, interestingly, Andrew, I love your your perspective on the the criminal justice system right now as it stands sending offenders especially teen offenders or young offenders to christian based rehabilitation programs as a part of their um as a way to keep them out of jail you know you can either go to juvie or you can go to this 10 week christian wilderness camp where we mm. cram christianity down your throat and at the end of it, you're saved and everything's okay. You know, there's not a, you know, Islamic wilderness camp. There's not a Buddhist, you know, I mean, it, it, it's just white Christianity. And hmm. it's not offered, to my knowledge, obviously I'm not, you know, I'm not an attorney. I'm not part of the criminal justice system. You know, I'm, you know, PR or whatever by trade, but uh, that to me is is so indicative of yeah. a, a strategy where we are taking people who are vulnerable, people who need help, and instead of treating them exactly how the Bible tells us to treat them, which is you need to care for the least of these, the sick and the orphaned and the hurting, you know, with like if, if the Good Samaritan story, like my three year old can recite that story. Okay. Mm -hmm. But instead we say, no, 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 no. It's either jail or Jesus. Like there's no, yeah. and like, I just would, as an attorney, I would just love your thoughts on that. Yeah. I mean, it's, there's some really uh, harrowing stories about things like that happening. And in fact, Americans United for Separation of Church and State AU.org, the organization that I work for right now, we're representing um, a guy who is in Colorado. He's an atheist. Um, and his parole officer put him uh, into essentially a Christian halfway house that included Bible mm. readings and proselytizing and prayers that were, that were mandatory. And he didn't want to take part in those because he's not a Christian. Uh, and they threw him back in jail for violating his parole. Um, which mm. of course comes with a whole host of, of other things, right? And it, it's part and parcel to what we're talking about. We're talking about using the machinery of the state, whether it's schools or the treasury or what have you, to impose one particular brand of unpopular conservative evangelicalism on 
everybody else. Um, and it's it's because it's unpopular that they're seeking to co-opt the state for their their proselytizing. Um, and you know, one of the things that we are doing at Americans United right now, we just launched at our summit for religious freedom, um, which was this this amazing uh, conference in D.C. where we brought together all kinds of di- people from different walks of life. Um, uh, you know, about half the people were religious, half the people were non-religious, people from all, all different gender, sexual orientation, uh, religious backgrounds, really amazing. And um, we launched our One Nation All Beliefs Pledge mm-hmm. um, to, to really raise awareness about the threats that, that we face for separation of church and state and get people involved in fighting for this core fundamental American value that, that defends that, that beautiful, diverse American tapestry that we're talking about right now. Um, so if people are interested in signing up for that, they can go to au.org slash pledge uh, and sign the One Nation All Beliefs Pledge and uh, learn more. And then we're going to ladder you up into a lot more activism uh, to join this fight. <laughs> well, honestly, we need to. I mean, yeah. I think a lot of people, so, you know, I deal in that deconstruction space, Andrew, people who grew up, you know, kind of like me, evangelical conservative, and are just like, okay, that's not the Jesus I want to follow. I need better paths forward. And a lot of them are kind of coming out of that, like the, the, maybe maybe the hardest part of like re, of like retooling the mind to kind of get there. And now a lot of us are like, well, what do we do? You know, like, okay, yeah. well, where of what's happening? What do we do? And I I do think more than ever, especially as we come up to another election cycle, uh, that we are getting active in our local communities and partnering with organizations to to make these stands because, like you said, uh, Alyssa. And uh, Andrew, this is not a majority position. Like, you know, you you can talk to Bradley Onishi or Samuel Perry. They will tell you PRRI data says 30% of Americans hold somewhat Christian nationalist views, depending on on the spectrum that that they're on. And even less hold like those extreme Charlie Kirk type Christian nationalist views. But they're incredibly well funded and they're incredibly loud and they're able to get a lot of things done. So I think it's important for us to stand up for the sake of our neighbor. One question I had before I let you go, Andrew, I know you, that you we're coming up to a, a stop here for you, but I do have to ask because you're just so much more tapped into this than I am. Can you break down for our audience, this Clarence Thomas situation oh, yeah. on the Supreme court? Because I, you know, I will be honest. I, 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 I never want to read over sens- sensationalized headlines that could be misleading, but it does seem like from what I am seeing, this is a pretty big deal in the history of the court. But can you give us some, per- first off, the situation, then give us some perspective and if this has happened before and then ways to deal with it? Yes. Um, first, let me say this. I do, I do not think the coverage of what is happening with the Supreme Court, with Clarence Thomas. There was some stuff with Neil Gorsuch as well. Um, yeah, uh, with Chief Justice John Roberts' wife, who's a legal recruiter, I, I do not think any of it is overblown. Okay, I think it is overdue. Um, mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is, for a long time, we've we've treated the justices as kind of these these untouchable oracles in robes who are handing down these decisions from, you know, their their version of. Uh, Mount Sinai at one first street. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And, and it, it, it's to our detriment. Um, mm-hmm. and, and there are, there are, there is a class of, uh, journalists that cover the court regularly that depend on access to that court to get their stories. And because they depend on those relationships, they are reluctant, I think, to be, critical of the court 
in a way, and the justices in a way that they really need to be to to serve the public interest, to be that sort of fourth estate that we talk about with journalism. Mm-hmm. And I, I so I, I think that is why we've not heard some of these stories and why it's taking groups like ProPublica to break through them. But, um, you know, you can go back and this is tied to the crusade as well, right? Like there, there were stories that broke last summer. Um, Rob Schenk, um, who's, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, you, you're familiar and your listeners probably are too, you know, admitted that he had access to the high court and to the justices and been praying in chambers with the justices, including Scalia and Thomas, and had been connecting them with donors um, and having the, basically trying to provide them with the moral and spiritual support so that they could make politically unpopular decisions, right? Going to what we've been talking about the whole time, go make decisions that fly in the face of the will of the people, 70% of the country, 80% of the, the country, um, to stiffen their spines was one of the ways that he put it. Um, and, and what we're seeing is more and more stories like that leaking out. Um, so the big one with with Clarence Thomas is, is Harlan Crow, um, who is this this huge wealthy mega donor who collects Nazi paraphernalia, um, which is like, you know, if you were to write that in your fiction book and your editor were to read it, they'd be like, this is a little overdone with the Nazi stuff. Like, you know, right, it's, kind right. of a, it's, a, it's a little, little bit of a trope yeah. at this point, but like, no. no it's a, he yeah. collects yeah. a lot of it. Again, a, a Dallas, a Dallasite, you know. Yeah. And it, but like, it, it's, it's, and, and, you know, he, they talk about how their Clarence and he have the, their defense to this is him flying Clarence Thomas around on his private jet shuttling him around on his super yacht, giving him these vacations is that, oh, well, they're friends. But the first time they met was when Harlan Crow gave Clarence Thomas a ride on his private jet. But you just mm. don't, you don't just do that for random people. You do that for powerful people who can pay you back in other ways. Um, and, you know, it's, I mean, to me, uh, it goes back to the fact that really that this, this court, the Supreme Court is, is not answerable to anybody politically. Uh, the, the checks that are supposed to be on this court um, are impeachment, which we have seen is not an effective check in recent years. We saw the amount of political capital that the Republicans were willing to spend to put Kavanaugh and Barrett and Gorsuch on the court. We saw the, we know the amount of money they were willing to spend to put them on the court. The idea yeah. that they would allow one of their justices, one of their conservative majority members of the conservative majority to be impeached is, is laughable. Um, mm. So, I mean, I mean, what, what you're really seeing happen from the Shank story to the Thomas story, we're, we're to, to Leonard Leo buying the court. We're, we're talking about the capture of the Supreme court. And, and we, we just have to do away with the idea that this is, these are impartial jurists mm. who are deciding cases on the basis of facts and law. And I was just going to tie it back to one of your earlier questions, Tim. Uh, go go look at the Coach Kennedy case, Kennedy versus Bremerton School District, right? In this case, the appellate court warned that First Liberty Institute, the Christian nationalist group behind the coach, was spinning a, quote, deceitful narrative in the case. Right? Yeah. That is what a judge 
said about the attorneys at First Liberty Institute. And if a judge wrote that in an opinion about what I was doing, said that I was spinning a deceitful narrative, like I would go bury my head in shame, right? Yeah. I, I would go take like a, a bunch of <laughs> ethics classes. Yeah. Find like, a new job. Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah, right? Like that is, I mean, that is just, the, I cannot think of anything more shameful or embarrassing. Mm, yeah. And First Liberty appealed the case to the Supreme Court. That's what they did in yeah. response. They didn't, right. they didn't change anything. They used the same deceitful narrative and they appealed that to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court bought it. They appealed yeah. because they knew it would fall on friendly ears. And it right. did. And you have Justice Sonia Sotomayor in her dissent putting photographs in there, just basically like throwing up her hands, being like, I, there's photos. I, don't, I have receipts. Do you right. wish to see them? I don't know. Like, And they right. don't, it didn't matter. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I mean, and, and that to me is just, that, that's where we are, right? That facts and reality were rejected to reach an outcome that favored white Christian nationalism, that weaponized our understanding of religious freedom. That, that's where we are. And that, that, that is a sure sign that this court is just not just broken, but captured. And we need a fix for it. Well, it reflects it reflects the current political discourse. Look, I mean, I I tell people this now. Truly, I say if we're going to debate the 2020 election, it's like debating a flat Earth with me. Like yeah. I don't know what universe we're operating in, yeah. but I'm not even going to entertain such nonsense. Like there's been there's there is a Mount Everest sized pile of data showing how the whole narrative spun by right-wing media trump that's still spun to this day i mean charlie kirk tweeted out today that the election was rigged in 2020 i'm like dude you have to be living in an alternate universe you have to wake up put a blindfold on put on headphones and just say i live in la la land to really believe that after everything we've been through and after all the data we've seen so it definitely seems like to me there is one of these situations where alternative facts are becoming, you know, a reality for some people. And we're, we're dealing with, with two very different versions of what it means to be an American, what it means to look at truth and justice and, and data. And I think my last, my last statement for you, uh, Andrew, and maybe you can end on this. I know that you have to jet is, is there any, like, do you see any glimmers of hope, any rays of sunshine, yes. any, any potential ways forward? Give us some of those. Yeah, I do. Um, I mean, and first I, you know, I think, you're really right. We we don't live in a shared reality anymore. And yeah. if, if you don't live in a shared reality, it is very difficult to have the rule of law or or to have democracy. I mean, that, that truly is... I mean, it, it may not be possible. Now, yeah. and look, I, okay, and I, yes, this has been probably a pretty scary podcast for people. I know, I know, um, you know. And as as an author, I love hear, you know people contact me all the time on email or social media. Hey, Andrew, yeah. I bought your book. Like I said, I'm I'm, I'm always you know, I always respond. Yeah. You know, thanks. Happy reading. But, yeah, but, good luck. <laughs> yeah, but American <laughs> Crusade, right? You can't do that. Like, the, yeah, yeah, this I is have your yeah. on speed dial. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this yeah, is really. scary stuff. But so I do. I, I'm glad you asked about hope because I do. I do have hope. I really, really do. And and the wellspring of my hope is this basic definitional truth: their power-hungry aggression is growing our movement. Their wins mm. in in the the abortion case, in the, the coach imposing his prayer on other people's kids case, in the main taxpayers funding 
religious indoctrination. And in all the cases that I list in detail in American Crusade, in the cases that the court's going to take up this term, their wins swell our ranks. They're actually creating this, this suicidal feedback loop. Because remember, go back to the why, the why this is happening. The whole reason for this crusade in the first place is that white Christian nationalists are working to privilege the chosen few. So mm. every legislative and legal victory that they notch alienates more people, wakes more people up to the danger, and drives more people away from their movement. Their power-hungry aggression is growing our movement. So, yeah. right, they're working to, they're crusading because we are meeting those unmet promises in the American Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution, the self-evident truth that all of us are equal, that, that we the people means all the people. And sure, previous generations have failed, sometimes miserably, to realize mm. those aspirations. And they've left it to, the, to their children and to us to contend with human tragedies like slavery and segregation and the subjugation of women and discrimination against LGBTQ people and, and the climate crisis. But but as we march toward that progress, Christian nationalists are fighting ever harder against it, that they are not going to go gently. They are going to rage, rage against the dying of their privilege. But, but in the end, we yeah. will win Be because they fight only yeah. for themselves. And, and where they are selfish, we are selfless. They want supremacy. We want equality. And, and that's why in the yeah. end, we will triumph because, well, not because our principle is inherently better than theirs, though it is. But but the, the math is on our side. We have the numbers. And right. that, that's what they're fighting. Yeah. That's what they're raging against. Um, you can fight City Hall, but you can't fight math. So I have hope. Right. But I should Fair. also, yeah. I guess the one word of the one word of caution though is what Alyssa touched on earlier is that the other they played a long game. And so while I have game. hope, like I I am we are we are in a we are in a long fight. This is not there's no immediate fix that we can there's no legal case that we're going to invent that's going to fix this overnight it's a long fight ahead andrew i know that you have a hard stop in like two minutes so i'm gonna let you go i'm gonna just say thank you so much for being on the podcast where can folks find you andrew if they, if they want to buy the book or follow you on social media plug all your stuff away uh, i'm andrew l seidel s-e-i-d-e-l on all of the places and things and socials uh but please go to au.org slash pledge and sign that one nation all beliefs pledge and if you want to get a copy of american crusade go to your local library and check one out if you insist on buying it check out bookshop.org org uh and then you can support your local bookstores because no need to support the jeff bezos who's ruining everything anyway too that's another podcast <laughs> amen i agree andrew it was yeah. great having you on i'm sure we'll bring you back yeah. on to talk more thanks for your time as always pleasure to meet you andrew anytime my friend Alyssa. it was a pleasure <laughs>